The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You can never hear really good sound advice too much. And with that said, let's do this. It's so true. Good advice, when you hear it over and over and over, it instills inside you and it helps you remember it when you really, really need it. And so what I've decided to do is go back through the archive of podcast episodes over the years and pull out the advice, the best advice that my guests have given you over these episodes. Now, these can be hard to find because at the, well, near the end of pretty much every episode, I asked a guest to give their advice to new and aspiring wildlife filmmakers. But what I've done is I've gone back and I've captured those answers from that question and I've put them in this, the best advice compilation number one. And so here it is. This podcast is proudly powered by Battleborn Batteries. Let the power of lithium take you on your journeys across the outdoor world. Battleborn Batteries is the industry's top choice for lithium-ion batteries. Reliable, safe, and long-lasting, Battleborn makes the sustainable and lightweight drop-in replacement for traditional lead-acid batteries. Are you ready to make the switch to lithium and switch to green energy? If so, all batteries are in stock now and you can shop today at battlebornbatteries.com. In terms of any other advice that you might have for people trying to break into the industry, um, I think, you know, so much of the time um, people are looking to, you know, we've got lots of passionate people out there with cameras. They want to get out. They want to find stories, find animals to film. They also want to, you know, kind of learn how to get uh, attract the networks and get work in this industry. If you had to kind of roll that all into one you know, no, no pressure. <laughs> but if you had to kind of give some, give a viable tip to people to say, you know, there, there is a way to do this, what would that be? Networking is everything. Um, if you're young, you've got to, you've got to just try to get on productions, whether you're a PA, you know, don't, don't just assume you're going to get hired from BBC or National Geographic as a cameraman, you know, it's probably not going to happen, but you can get hired on productions as a production assistant, you know, and that's probably the most viable way to get in the network. Um, you know, I only worked for National Geographic full time for six weeks, um, but having that on my resume has allowed me to like, A, have this incredible network of people that you and I both know and, and uh, are just awesome, but um, it's also just allowed me to get my foot in the door and then as I've done my own work, continue those relationships. Um, but it really is networking. You gotta be positive in the field, 
You got to be nice in the field. You got to be helpful in the field. <laughs> That's the if, if you do get on a job, those are the biggest things you have to be. You know, no one's gonna no one's gonna say I expect you to get the the, the best shot in the world. You know, on, on a as your first gig as a PA or an AC or even a second camera. But you know, if you're the guy who's or the girl who's most helpful and is positive and is eager and hungry and and just wants to make it happen, you know, people people see that and. As much as a lot of people in this industry are like that, it is rare outside of this industry to see that because um, it, the situations we find ourselves in are hard. You know, it's raining, it's cold, they're long days, you're staying up all night, you know. And when you're that person who's fun to be with, it makes a big difference. Um, and then the last thing I would say is like for working on your reel or working on, you know, developing something, I would say like look to the experts you know, and I haven't done this recently, but I'm, 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 I literally just started doing it again, is doing breakdowns of films, scene by scene, shot by shot. You know, you don't need to, everybody wants to just go out and shoot and think that they're going to be, you know, an auteur and they're going to be, you know, the next Hitchcock, but like, you know, you have to know the techniques that people are using. And if you look at your favorite sequence in Planet Earth or, you know, in Untamed Americas or whatever it is, break it down every single shot, under and get an understanding of like wow that's what a sequence looks like and then go out in the field and if you're shooting a squirrel or a raccoon or a bird think about all right if i wanted to make a sequence that was like that you know with the animals that are around me like and you're able to pull that off like people are going to see like wow you have a grasp of how to tell a little story and that's the biggest thing you know we're storytellers like we're not just people who get pretty pictures like and unfortunately like sometimes you can go in the field and get pretty pictures and not get a story um but that, there's a big difference in that now in terms of the gear you use uh, i'm sure you've used many cameras throughout your career um something that we're seeing now obviously with technology is you know Technology is moving so fast. Cameras are coming out every few months, and um, the, the the kind of coined phrase "gear envy" is happening. Uh, you know, everywhere you look, where people are, are desperate to get the latest and greatest, and. Um, uh, most of the time they want to do that before they really have any real work or they're bringing in money and obviously it can finish you before you've started. What, um, tell us a bit about the equipment you use, but also, you know, what advice do you have for people who are starting out and um, uh, just starting in the filming world with regards to all this new technology? Well, the, the, the technology and the breakthroughs and the speed is just uh, mind-boggling, driving us all crazy because... You know, it's a flavor of the every six months we got to change or, oh, the broadcasters want this or that. And, you know, we've moved to high definition to, to 4K to where that's going to go. Uh, to a camera person, it's costing us a heck of a lot of money and confusion. Uh, knowing that we to play the game, you have to have the, the right gun. And at the same time, you know, if you're starting out, can you really make an investment like that and have very little work or no work or a few assignments? I don't think you can because you're going to go immediately into debt. At the same time, you got to have that piece of equipment to get to work. So it's definitely catch-22. Um, I don't think you have to have the top, top uh, kit to find the work, uh, to demonstrate you know your abilities 
some of the crossover cameras, these Canon the DSLRs, whatever, the 5D Mark III now or IV, are, are, are putting out some powerful images. Sony has some smaller cameras now that are shooting HD and 4K. Uh, the, the, the Sony, the small little Sony that's out, the S, what is it, the, the 7S, whatever, Mark II, uh, is, is a brilliant little camera what you get out of it. It's astounding what these cameras are doing. Will that be accepted on world broadcasts? Maybe not, but you still have to have that to demonstrate to people. So maybe at times renting some gear, but that's very expensive too. That's the trouble with, with cameramen that do documentary natural history. We can't rent our gear because we're out in the field so long. The rentals are too expensive. It's not like LA, New York, Vancouver, whatever, London, where you can just run by and pick up your kit, and come back in, you've got a problem. You've got to have the whole deal. So it is a real conundrum, and I'm a little uh, irritated by, let's say, guys that go out and get a red kit, and then they're, they're already uh, putting their sign out that they're a director of photography because they have the red system. That doesn't make you a, a top cinematographer, a videographer. Uh, maybe it's it, it, it's the first piece of it, but you still got to know what the hell you're doing. And and uh, so image quality is very important, but the skill behind it is uh, is even more important. And and you, you maybe you have to wait your turn. You know, it, it's a slow process. And again, patience, just like when you're shooting, uh, you got to have the patience. You can't just expect you're going to break right through as a young camera person and for everybody to be ready for you. The, the truth of the matter is there's too many. There's too many people out there with skills. The world has changed. You know, there's just, it's true of every field, but there's always room for good people and that have passion, patience, persistence. That's my three Ps for, for being a good wildlife cameraman. But uh, the gear, I can't answer that uh, any more than, than others. I'm in the same boat. Time to get another piece of kit. I had one camera a few years ago that was a $100,000 body. And five years later, it was worth zero. The viewfinder was $13,000, let alone the lenses and then the custom underwater housing. So I had about $180,000 invested in that kit. And, and nothing was worth uh, after five years except a couple of lenses I sold that then couldn't be used in you know, what we're doing today. So it may be the best alternative is to get work with one of the crossover cameras and, and, and shoot with those and the housings if you're going to go underwater are a lot more reasonably priced. But then use those same lenses as you step it up. Tripods are still tripods. Quality glass is still going to be quality glass, the lenses. But where this is all going, I have no idea. I didn't know there would ever be such a thing as tapeless or filmless, you know, on a little memory card. Uh, but um, at the same time, you got to make a you got to make the jump somewhere. So maybe maybe getting on a mid level is a little better way to go and show your skills. 
So it really was a case that they wanted to see that you had what it took to create these great images to be able to work with you in the future. And I think that's a, a very valuable lesson um, still today. Um, how, what would you say um, for people who are just kind of trying to break into the industry, whether they're doing it independently or trying to intern or work with production companies and networks, do you think that's still a viable thing today to, to hone your craft before you go and, and um, speak to these networks? Um, or do you think the model has kind of changed? I wasn't young at the time. I'd come in with, as I said, a, a pretty solid marine biology background and lots of research papers and contacts and diving skills and boating skills. Uh, I, I try to advise uh, people that want to come into the business is, is, yeah, you know, it's so tough. First of all, right away, you got to learn. It's one of the toughest things to break into. There's only so many slots. But today, with the cameras the way they are, you can really uh, take some courses. You can experiment by yourself. You can go out and shoot and, and, and look. Don't do it all on your own, though. You've got to have mentors. You've got to have teachers or work with some groups. We generally pass uh, younger types around, and it's word of mouth. We rarely take someone based on uh, sending a resume if we don't know them because we're working in a field. It's really tight quarters, small groups. If we have one bad egg apple in the basket, it makes it impossible. And, and that's true of, of wildlife, natural history, uh, research, as well as filmmaking. So we're very careful about who we get and some of those skills that come in besides, oh, I know how to do camera work. The first thing I would ask was, was, do you smoke? And and if there was a long delay, we'd say, well, you do, and it just doesn't work in, in close quarter, especially on boats, unless you can hold it <laughs> together. Uh, the other thing we'd say, did you cook? Can you cook? And immediately, the gals would say, oh, my God, I'm going to be passed. I'm going to be the end up the cook here. Instead, I would say, wait a minute, we've got guys that carry around their own spice racks and they know how to cook because y'all we chip in and so we have we delegate different jobs and it somebody make we're out in a field camp somewhere on a boat somewhere you need that can you run an outboard motor can you run a small boat can you dive uh you know how are you with the camera gear do you have some technical skills so not just shooting with a camera but come in with something else and i was always trying to promote not just camera work, but why don't you get into sound? I'd tell some people, you know, we need good sound recorders desperately that can go out in the field and are on our tough and can handle those conditions, especially out on a boat. You're out there and it's not, we're talking about in the open ocean and sea and we need good sound work, we need good camera work, as well as writers. I mean, there are, there are some other, there are other jobs within the business that are just as vital but come with some skills that will really help out the filmmaker, whoever's producing it. And they're gonna, you're going to be a lot happier. But also, know right up front, you're going to be a Sherpa. You're going to carry gear. You're going to carry gear. You're going to be a grunt. And if you expect to start off as a producer, director of photography, uh, forget it. Uh, it may be a year, and you're carrying gear. It used to be because of film, you didn't even get a chance to turn on the camera. You might set it up, you carried a tripod, but you weren't shooting because of the, the expense and the, uh, 
you know, everybody's job was sort of online to get the great shot. And, and so the assistants, assistant assistants, what, they weren't shooting. Now I, I'm really, uh, you know, encourage the younger types that work with me to shoot. And, and so they get something out of it too, whether they're taking stills or they're doing some, some video work. That doesn't mean it's theirs, but um, they, they gain a lot more out of it. So it's gain some other skills, uh, communication key to be able to to interact with other people you can be an oddball later when you make it as we'd say in Hollywood or something but not out in the field when you have to work with colleagues in tight quarters and and it just it just doesn't we we tolerate it for a bit but we'd much rather have people that are really wanting it I mean the passion's got to be there and you know it within the first week we've had people where they just can't cut it in a week they're carrying stuff up and down hills, and they're on beaches, they're on their knees getting seasick. And, and it's, the reality clicks in. They're not going to be Jacques Cousteau or, you know, David Attenborough or whatever. I can go down the list of great cameramen uh, and, and filmmakers. But uh, the reality hits in that we're, you know, it's, it's a lot of labor. Now, um, Chris, I know you've got to shoot. You have a meeting. One last question for you. If you had one piece of advice, a nugget to throw out there to people who are looking to um, be a host or even just get into the wildlife filmmaking industry, what would that be? It would be don't wonder about it too much. Just get out and do it. If you've got a phone in your pocket, it's probably got a camera on it, and that's all you need these days. God, it would have been different. A different conversation five, ten years ago, wouldn't it? You know, but now anyone can do it. So don't talk about it. Don't think about it. Just get out and, and do it. And if you find a comfort zone and you're good at it, you'll be noticed. That's the other extraordinary thing, isn't it? You know, so, yeah, go and do it, you know. You know, if you want to get into working with wildlife or doing any of these things, you've got to be prepared to put yourself out. And one of the best ways is to volunteer, yeah. right? Put yourself out there. Show that you're willing. Um, You've done a lot of that. Yeah. On top of that, I mean, I'm sure that would be one of your, your things that you would tell oh, people. Oh, that's the number one. That's the number Hands one. Hands down, number one. What else would you say to someone who is looking specifically to become a host? There's a lot of people. Oh, what, yeah. what would you say? What would your advice be? I could be? probably write a whole book about it. <laughs> it's, it's, there's so many different things you could do. I think for me, it's, it's, I get frustrated when people say, I want to work with wildlife and conservation or I want to be a host. How do I be like you? You know, tell me your story so I can follow your path. And I'm like, dude, we we are going to have totally different paths. I I didn't know that this path was going to happen. However, all um, I have a women in science and exploration project I'm doing right now where I'm combining the stories of over 50 women right now of all ages and ethnicities and in many areas. And what we all have in common now that I got them all on my site and I've read through all of them is that basically number one, be willing to to work for free if you love it. You know, you should already, if you you want to do something you love and you're passionate about every single day that you wake up to and you're so excited, you would do it for free. I would do this hosting job for free, mutual. To, to, don't take that seriously. But I would, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, you would be willing to do it. Like if, if money wasn't an issue, what would you do? And um, it takes team effort. So volunteering is extremely important. And I think it's also very grounding to know all the different roles that are being played and that you're not going to be able to do tiger conservation paw print work unless you know how to clean a tiger poop and make sure that um, you know, they're, they're cared for in the first place before you do p paw prints. So 
volunteering is extremely important. My second advice would be if you want to host, um, you're going to need to get in front of a camera. You're going to need to practice writing scripts or um, right, making bullet points or having just creating what your voice is and what you want to say. And that's not going to happen overnight. I struggle with it all the time. I still actually haven't created a YouTube channel. I still haven't put myself out there a lot because I'm still trying to figure out what my voice is in this very animal welfare sensitive world right now. I want to help people understand everything, but it's scary to find that voice. Well, we need to, you know, and, and I have done it enough to obviously get to where I am. However, I, I would recommend get in front of a camera, practice, throw your stuff up on YouTube, create your own YouTube channel. The only problems you're going to have is if you don't own a camera, but it doesn't matter, you can do your phone. I've seen people make documentaries with their phones or their GoPros. Um, and then editing, you can use simple iMovie. Teach yourself, okay? It stinks. It's a hard process, but how bad do you want it? You know, are you willing to learn video editing is scary or you then do it? If you're, if you want to work with tires, you're going to have to scoop up poop. I call all of that scoop and poop. <laughs> Which it is, right? You know, it's the, exactly. The things you don't want to do that are hard and scary and maybe you don't have the skill set for, you're going to have to scoop the poop to get to those places. So first would be volunteering everywhere you can in any position that you can get in, even if it's grunt work. Secondly would be getting your face on camera and practice and find somebody that can help you with some of the scooping of the poop too, if you, if you really want it. And, um, the third would be, you know, get it, creating your brand and getting yourself on a website and social media and just putting yourself out there. If you had to give uh, just a nugget more of advice, we've spoken about passion, which I think is probably the most important thing, and using you know any gear that you really have to get going. Is there anything else that you could use to help inspire people to move forward with their goals? You know, I think that it's really about learning as much as you can from everybody around you and never miss an opportunity to learn something new if it presents itself would be the other thing that I would would say, um, whether it's a skill in terms of, you know, adventure and you need to climb to see, you know, whatever you're studying, or if you need to be a better free diver so that you can, you know, reach that species that you want to see or a higher level of training and scuba diving. But really you want to minimize your risk in everything you do. So get as skilled as every, at everything that you can do, um, and learn as much as you can. I recently got introduced to Athletic Greens as a way to optimize for better gut health, get more energy, and optimize the immune system. So what is this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It's a lifestyle-friendly brand, which means whether you're eating keto or paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it's gonna work for you. Contains less than one gram of sugar, there's no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. And for every purchase, Athletic Greens is going to donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. In fact, in 2020 alone, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. And not only that, Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company. 
Again, in 2020, Athletic Greens purchased carbon credits to support projects protecting old growth rainforests. That's huge. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with the convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do to get this deal is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging. That's E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now back to the show. If you had advice for people wanting to get into working with insects, because that's, that's your, your primary thing, that's where your passion lies, what advice are you going to give to people who, you know, maybe can't afford a RED, maybe can't afford Canon L-series lenses because they're expensive? You know, where should people start? Because you can find an insect wherever you are. I don't care where you live. Maybe not if you live in Antarctica. But what advice have you got for them? Um, I know it sounds like really cliche, but honestly, if you have a camera, just shoot it. I mean... There are so many ways. Okay, so here's a tip. Um, if you really want to get into macro, uh, then you can take a DSLR. Um, and, you know, you can even get a cheap DSLR. They sell DSLRs for like $200 on eBay. Um, so get a DSLR, get a kit lens, uh, and reverse the lens so the front of the glass is actually facing the sensor. And that's a good way to actually um, start macro work. Um, but again... If you're really interested in macro, you got to MacGyver stuff and, you know, figure that out. If you have a camera, go and shoot. That's, that's the whole point of why we're in this industry. So, um, you know, even an iPhone. They had some iPhone classes at Wild Screen. Do you remember that? There were some iPhone wildlife filmmaking classes. I, I, had, no, okay. I wasn't there, but I can yeah. imagine. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say that you can make a blue chip off of it, but, you know, there's, um, there's always a way to shoot something. And that's what's really important. you got to keep shooting. Well, awesome. If you, one last thing. If, you, if you're going to give any more advice, right, another piece of advice, just in general about getting into the industry, for anyone trying to, you know, is just not quite there and they're like, okay, I want to do this, but it's a struggle, what should they do? I think if I was going to give any advice for wildlife filmmaking is, again, keeping that patience there, keeping that um, the passion there. And if you're good at what you do and you completely believe in it 100%, then it will come. Um, refine the craft, and it will get frustrating a lot of times, but that's just the journey to be successful. I'm not successful yet. I'm not saying that, but... It does take a lot of fails, fails to look back on and refine from there and keep going. Because eventually something will happen if you're, if you're passionate enough. There's no, if you're really passionate about, enough um, about, about what you want to do, then there doesn't make any sense in the universe for it to not work out for you, if that makes sense. 
Uh, totally. And I think it's um, failures are uh, one of the greatest learning experiences, right? If you, uh, if you didn't fail, you wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be the steep learning curve there or, or the exponential curve that happens after failure. Because yeah. once you plod on and you, you persevere, then, um, you know, those things can be the greatest things to move you forward. So. Well, um, there are actually a lot of uh, very successful um, people. I don't know. Uh, what's, his, what's his name? Uh, Tony Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins. Yeah. Yep. So, with Tony Robbins' story is um, right before he hit success, he was he took about a year off um, of his life because he just he was like really far down, and for some reason, even Stephen Hawking was the same way. I believe Stephen Hawking. For some reason, right before someone hits success, they go through a, a huge low, um, and nothing seems to be working out. And if you keep going after that, if you keep going on something, then it shoots up. And that's exactly what happens to everyone who has changed the world, um, who has become successful um, in what they want to do. I thought that was a pretty cool story that Tony Robbins had. Um, Absolutely. And I, I think it's part of building momentum. Yeah. You build that momentum and you build and it gets tiring and you get worn out and you get frustrated right. and then you have a big down because you're just like, why isn't this working? Yeah. But what happens is all that work and effort that you've put in comes back and starts paying off in dividends. Right. And then you got to keep maintaining it. And then you got to maintain it. That's right. You can't stop there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and Tony Robbins is a great example because obviously look at the work, look at the effort he puts in now uh, just to keep building his brand and, and, and inspiring people. If you were to give, offer some advice to um, filmmakers who are looking to really film film footage that has the potential to be seen and put into a production i mean i think your story really resonates and stands out because you know you are you're really the epitome of what a lot of people hope is going to happen to them right they they hope they're going to be out there doing that and their their footage is going to be found and all of a sudden they're off in a career in wildlife filmmaking what advice would you share if you had to give some advice what would it be yeah, I think a lot of it is, is, is just the reason why that happened for me is because I was just passionate about being there in the first place. I wasn't in Norway, for example, to try to get amazing footage, to try to launch a career. I was there because I wanted to genuinely be there because I just thought it was awesome. And so that just genuine passion for it made me spend a lot more days there than I otherwise would have. And and so if you have something that you are just really passionate about, that's where your focus should start, I think, because then it doesn't feel like work to you and it doesn't feel like you're out there trying to trying to film something for any particular reason or production. You're there because you love it. And, and, and you may not notice it yourself, but when you're doing things because you love them and because you're really interested in them and you're really passionate about them, you do a great job. You spend more time there. It doesn't feel like work. You enjoy it. So yeah, my advice would be to, you know, pick a subject or, or pick things that you just really love, whether it maybe it's maybe it's hiking in the mountains, whatever. You know, bring your cameras and you're going to spend a lot of time doing it because you're passionate about it and that's really, you know, where the the difference shines through where people can see, you know, in, incredible footage often comes from people who are just incredibly passionate about being in that location or working with that animal anyway. I think with most productions, it, it's about behavior. It's about capturing something unique. And 
a lot of the time, uh, you know, Blue Planet or Planet Earth wouldn't be filmed entirely on those cameras. But when it comes down to just using behavioral clips, they will do that because of the fact it's unique. It's unique stuff. And um, I think there's a lot to be said about people going out with whatever gear they have to find unique behavior because that's really what sets footage apart, right? It's No, you're absolutely right. I think people sometimes get caught up in, well, if I don't have... If I don't have a red weapon, there's no point in, in capturing it because it's not good enough for, for the best of the best. But, but what you say is absolutely right. Everybody would rather have the behavior than not have the behavior but have really high-quality footage. And so oftentimes, especially with the drones in, included, if you've got a, a drone flying a big camera that's got six minutes of flight time because it's such a high-quality setup your chances of filming behavior are fairly low. If you've got a smaller drone that's got 30 minutes of flight time, hands down, any producer will tell you, get the behavior on the camera first. Uh, don't worry so much about using the biggest, highest quality camera that's going to lower your chances of actually being able to get that behavior. Get the behavior and then you know get it on the highest quality camera you can, but first of all, get the behavior. And so you know the, the, the challenge with the smaller cameras, of course, is the, the lower dynamic range. So it just it makes you work a little bit harder as a filmmaker. It makes you think a little bit more about the light and the conditions and not getting you know dark blacks and bright whites all in the same shot. So you've got to work a little bit harder with your angles uh, to try to you know account for the fact that you've got a little bit lower dynamic range to work with compared to a bigger camera. But if you're if you're diligent about it and you're careful with how you film and you're careful with your settings and you're aware of the fact that you have a limited dynamic range to work with, you can still get amazing footage even with small cameras. And and you're right. If you you know the, the you'll sometimes see a behavioral sequence or an animal sequence and it'll be four minutes of of the grass blowing in the wind and the paws walking across the ground and then ten seconds of the kill. And if the kill wasn't filmed in the absolute highest quality, a lot of times people, they'll still use it because you get all that other stuff on the highest quality and then, you know, that absolute incredible behavior. If it's great behavior, most producers, even at the biggest blue chips, will take it, even if it's shot on a small camera. What kind of advice would you give to people? I mean, there's a lot of people here who are looking to be camera people. They're looking to be hosts um, and, and in general break into the industry. But for, for specifically with camera work and hosting, what advice would you give them? Because when, when they're looking at this and they see all these people and they see how finessed everything is these days, it looks like a, an impossible task. It's like, okay, I, I might as well give up now. There's so much talent around you know, it's hopeless. Why, why bother? And I see a lot of, I've spoken to a lot of people who are kind of down after the first few days. They're just kind of like, you know, I'm not enough. And it's really sad to see that because I know through doing these podcasts, how much, how, how many of the people in this industry are not here because they did some linear kind of stepping stone path to get here. So what kind of advice would you have for someone in that situation? Well, there's, I have a couple things that come right to mind. One is that when I started doing this, I still had no confidence in myself. And when people started to say, oh, my God, that was amazing. And when, and, and when I saw um, uh, uh, um, the footage that I had shot ended up in the movie and, and I, it was actually something that was 
really quite good. And I realized, oh my God, they took what I did and they made this movie and it's actually really good. And, you know, it's, it's, you don't do this stuff on your own. You do it with a team. It's, it's like you, you, you watch these amazing programs here and it's like everybody had a part in it. And, you know, well, you were the cameraman. So there was an editor who sifted through all your material and they're only showing the very best of your work, you know, and then they've layered music to like, make it even more dramatic and then there's some incredible person who's speaking about an amazing thing and so you really are just only one per one part of that thing and combined is where the power is you know if they just sat and watched your raw dailies they'd be like eh you know so that's one thing to for everybody to know it's it's you know uh it's a team effort but but the other thing is when when it comes to this stuff i mean uh, everybody has their own way in. Uh, there are opportunities for people today that we never had. I mean, I was working, well, we shot film, motion picture film, and, you know, the camera assistant got to touch the camera, but you didn't get to look down the eyepiece, you know. Um, you, you know, the, the cameraman uh, was the only one that was, you know, able to look down the lens and you know uh, you never got a chance to to frame up a shot and shoot anything and it took a long time before I was ever given a camera to go shoot anything nowadays everybody's got a phone which is probably better quality than the film cameras we were shooting on so I mean you know then there's the internet that allows you to post stuff instantaneously without having a you know huge budget we used to have roll a 10 minute roll of film was $400 raw then we had to have it processed and then it had to you know so now it's all free uh, so there is a tremendous um, opportunity for anybody who's starting out in this business because you could do anything you want now speaking upon the the, uh, the filming and, and everyone having a camera now and, and, and how gorgeous everything is looking these days because these cameras are just incredible um, there's this is two part first of all um, people get intimidated when they see all this great stuff I mean here we're seeing you know top-notch wildlife films and for a camera person again breaking into it and they're worried about what they're doing I've heard this a lot where people are saying you know what do I go and film that people haven't seen because it's like you know Bob's out there filming all this stuff if I go and film it you know it's the same stuff or it's not you know it's not going to look any different or it would probably look worse so you know what advice would you give specifically about you know where do you start with going out and filming wildlife to, to try and make it in the industry but I, I think that it's been like that for a long time now that it's all been shot already and but the fact is it hasn't because you know I watched something last night it just blew my mind you know uh, on uh, yesterday it was um, uh, um, born in China and the sequence with the snow leopard coming down and and trying to take a baby yak and the yak mother defending the cow I mean yeah okay they've been out filming snow leopards for a long time and it's been super difficult but they never got that before you know right, what i mean yeah, that was and, incredible and uh um so i think that it's never it's never like that and you know everybody has access to something i i do a lot of these um national geographic live tours and people ask me this question a lot and i'm like look you know um uh there's something going on in your city or in your backyard or in you know um your city park or whatever that nobody's stopped to look at before and it's fascinating everything you look at in nature is interesting if you tell the story so i think you know um yeah i'm lucky because i get to go do like 
cheetahs on the African, you know, bush. But uh, there's always another good story to be told. You mentioned the film festivals are in going to Jackson Hole and... Um, I always like to talk about the festivals because they play such an important role. And you just mentioned there that you took a promo and you got it taken up um, and probably, you know, many that weren't taken up because that's the reality of it. Right. Um, But just explain, you know, what you feel about film festivals and, you know, why it's worth going to those. Well, yeah, I think it it is. And, you you know, just to get known in, in the early days, I'm talking. So I've been filming nearly 30 years now, but. In those early days, um, I worked for Richard Goss for six years, and then I went out on my own. And I I went to Survival Anglia, in, well, you'll know them in the UK. And I sat down with them, and I showed them a film that I just shot. And well, no, before that, they I said to them, "Look, here's a a treatment to do. There's a film on jackals. Are you interested in stuff?" They said, "Yeah, this looks good, but um, we don't have any slots available. Come back and see us next year." So I said, well, I've just shot this movie. Don't you, please, can you just watch it and so you know what my work's like and whatever. So two producers sat down, watched the movie, and they said, oh, well, maybe we can fit you in here. Or maybe we can fit it in there. And it was the fastest contract I ever had. Two months later, I had a contract. Now, that's because I had a product. When you go in there as a nobody, you, you are a nobody. And why must they take the risk on you? It's really scary. So you've got to go and shoot a whole lot of it yourself. And that's why the film festivals get to know the people, get to see what's being done, show them your stuff, take little promos and, and get them to know you. Because with, with nothing, you are a nothing. And I was at another broadcaster one year where this, they came to me and I was doing some work with them and they showed me this treatment. And they, I looked at it and I said, shit, this looks really good. And it was a South African guy, but I, I can't remember his name. But anyway, they said to me, do you know him? So I said, no, unfortunately, I don't know the guy. And they tore it up in front of me um, just because you're a nobody. So we, the, the, the huge advantage these days, I mean, those days we were shooting films, so there was massive costs and things. The advantage today is you can shoot stuff on your cell phone. You can do promos and anything on your cell phone. You can edit them yourself, get it out there for, for very little money and go and promote yourself and, and show what you want to do. But back then, it was really hard. But you've got to have something. Without, without anything, you, you are a nobody and you're going to battle away. Obviously, in situations like that and, and many of the filming situations you've been in, you must have had issues one way or another, whether it's dangerous animals. And I don't mean that as, you know, just the fact that you're out there in the middle of wild animals. Um, and also equipment. I mean, we can, have, we can be filming in a studio and equipment goes wrong. What kind of trials and tribulations have you had in your over 30-year careers um, throughout your filmmaking lives? Well, let's just deal with the animal interactions. And, and given the amount of time we've spent out there, we've had relatively few. So over 30 years, you just count up those hours and you'd expect there to be pages and pages of interactions that have been negative. Um, but having said that, we, I've, been, I've, been, I've had four bouts of malaria. I've had 20 scorpion stings. I've been bitten by deadly snakes that didn't turn out to be as deadly as their reputation three times. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> crashed you know, three airplanes. Um, been, we've been hit in the vehicle by, by elephants four times. And more recently by a buffalo that put Beverly in hospital for couple of months and uh, so that we've been out of action for six months as a result of that but um, there's always something going wrong 
so we're, you know, the cameras are breaking down, batteries are failing at the wrong, absolutely wrong time. We drown a vehicle, we, we lose equipment. It's a, you know, we don't insure ourselves because I can't bear having a conversation with an insurer saying, has anything ever gone wrong? <laughs> <laughs> but I think what is important to say, you know, um, we've always felt that we have to have the utmost respect for the animal. Um, we really don't want to antagonize them or threaten them in any way. So we don't want to box them in so that they have to, you know, come out. Each and every incident that Derek has spoken about has been a little bit of a um, accident in many ways because it's either been in the dark, we've parked in an area, um, and actually we had been filming uh, lions and they had killed, and so we just moved away from them to just uh, catch some sleep around about 2 o'clock in the, in the morning. And um, this elephant had given birth behind a bush which we obviously didn't see and didn't know and she stood up and her tiny little newborn came to the vehicle and she was irate and she started kicking sand at us and we lifted our heads to see what was kicking sand at us and it was a you know it was this female cow and so she hit us and but at least we handled it in a way that also was respectful to her uh, we didn't try and throw things at her or anything like that Derek just shone uh, the torch in her eyes and she didn't like that and she turned and that gave us a chance you know to be able to get away from her start the vehicle drive towards where she had run the little baby that wouldn't leave us followed and then we swerved and they're united again and so I think it is important for any future filmmaker is to have that utmost respect um, accidents will happen but when the accidents happen try and be responsible so that um, the animal doesn't get harmed I think also it was some of the major threats that we've had and have been from poachers um, and we've got notes every now and again saying we know where we live and we'll come and get you and also from the hunting fraternity so we've been um, uh, fairly anti-hunting for a long time and increasingly so as as these numbers disappear and you know for instance there are maybe 20,000 lions and of those maybe three and a half thousand male lions but we still allow universally the shooting of 660 male lions a year, and so that's not sustainable. So we've been talking out about that, and some of those plane crashes I was talking about were a result of direct sabotage, and they've fired rounds of ammunition into our camp, and so it's, it's ironic that through all of this, our, our biggest threat is really our fellow man. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that I, I love about you guys as filmmakers is your utmost respect for wildlife and the fact that throughout the years you you still make the same kind of very respectful uh, wildlife shows and you know the, the industry has changed a lot. There's a lot of different type of programming when it comes to wildlife and, you know, channels like to kind of push people to break envelopes and, you know, show different things. And I think it's so wonderful that, you know, you guys are out there and you, you stick to your guns and you respect the wildlife and you're out there all the time doing what you love. And I think that's a, such an important lesson for any new filmmaker to take on board. Absolutely. Um, you know, just uh, talking about um, this last incident that just happened, um, when I was on the ground for 11 hours in the Okavango and, and uh, you know, Derek couldn't get me out until the morning, and um, somebody that came to help Derek said, we better get that buffalo shot. And I had just been hit by the buff buffalo, mauled by the buffalo, and my first words were, don't harm the buffalo. And then when I was in ICU and um, Derek was dealing with everybody and he made it very clear to the camp, do not harm the buffalo. They got vets in to relocate it, but not to harm it. Because it's not its fault, right? It's 
Absolutely. I mean, we've totally forgiven um, the buffalo for that. Sadly, the buffalo did die because he was incredibly wounded. Um, he was living on a quarter lung. His one lung had collapsed and the other one was, was gangrene. And so it wasn't his fault. He was demented. It was a freak accident in every way. I think if I was going to advise aspiring filmmakers, a young guy starting out, I would uh, I would say look at at people at, at like us in in this phase of our lives and consider your, place yourself there, and then look back at your your career's work and how proud you will be of that or not. So make decisions now that you'll be able to look back at 30 years from now with a clear conscience. It raises the question about kind of understanding wildlife. And this is something I'm asked a lot. And I try and um, give advice to young aspiring filmmakers who are trying to get into wildlife filmmaking about, um, it, you know, it's far more important to understand wildlife than it is filmmaking. The, the, the fundamentals of filmmaking will never really change. Uh, but technology is changing all the time. And I know with so many people I speak to that a lot of filmmakers are desperately trying to master everything there is uh, about a camera uh, and they really aren't spending too much time worrying about wildlife. Um, what, what do you guys have to say about that, you know, just in terms of understanding wildlife um, when you're looking to get into this kind of industry? Well, for one thing... Um you have to have the wildlife before you have the equipment. And you have to really know the behavior of animals and have not only a plan A, a plan B. So, for instance, if you're doing an insect or something like that and it has a really interesting behavior and you only want to just go do that insect, you, you should have a plan B in case it's seasonal and something's not happening. But but you can have the equipment and the equipment, most of the equipment now is still fine high definition and everything else but um you really have to know the behavior of animals before you can even get started if you're doing wildlife documentaries and you have you should have some sort of background and should have some really good researcher to research it out um before you could, could get the technology Ahead, right. Yeah. You know, um, we meet so many people coming down here who um, simply just don't get it. They don't understand wildlife. They don't understand the, the natural cycles of things and how long it takes. And they say, well, we're, we're here for 24 hours and we want to get this, this and this and this. You know, and we look at each other and say, look, that ain't going to work, you know. Working generally, the BBC are the ones that we really enjoy working with because most of the uh, producers and most of the camera people, the cameramen, get it. They understand nature. They understand the natural rhythms and the difficulties of getting the uh, animals. And they also have a very strict code, too, about... <clears throat> How animals are, are are treated, you know, in the set sort of situation, and we are very, very careful with our animals, and uh, you know, making sure that they're well well looked after. And if we catch them from the wild, we always take them back and release them where we have them. Uh, we get them, and people, you know, people outside the business of natural history, they may be wonderful filmmakers, they may know the equipment incredibly well, but they don't get what is involved with nature. And that's the crucial thing about the whole business, I think. You've got to have a, a passion to do it, and you've got to have an understanding and some basic knowledge of how nature works. Yeah, but you're right. We get that a lot with the, with the new upcoming uh, filmmakers. They do get into their equipment more than get into the behavior. And then they look to us to get them the behavior. And then when we try to tell them how to get the behavior, they're going, oh, I can't get it with this equipment. 
Well, that's when the research should have happened. You know, they should right. have researched it. Right. Absolutely. So, so it's so paramount to what you're going to get at the end of the day, not only understanding the behavior so you're prepared to get the, the money shot, let's say, when it happens, but also just knowing up front what gear you're going to need. Because if it's too heavy or, or the wrong kind of camera, then you're just not going to get the, you know, what you're expecting. And I, I think that's so super valuable. Um, on that yeah, note, absolutely. Of, sorry, go ahead. And you've got, to you've got to mesh the two together. They both got to meet. I mean, you know, the really, really good filmmakers and the really good cameramen, and the, we get the best of the best coming out here visiting from BBC usually. You know, they're, they're, they're incredible tech guys. They're biologists. And they, and they can handle stress, you know, and under, under, under a lot of pressure. And those are the valuable things, I think, that... Um, um, you know, a filmmaker and a natural history filmmaker needs to have to be really good at it. If you have enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please consider leaving a rating and a comment. And subscribe if you haven't already done so from wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. The ratings really help rank the podcast and get more people to find it. Also, if you know someone who is into wildlife filmmaking, or maybe they're a nature photographer and they're looking to transition and they aren't listening, to the podcast currently, please tell them about it. Word of mouth is the best way for me to build my listeners uh, for this podcast. I would very much appreciate it. And also, if you are looking to break into the wildlife filmmaking industry and you're just looking for help, you're looking for answers for burning questions that you have, then please consider looking at my Master Wildlife Filmmaking Mentoring uh, Group and Mentorship Program. You can find that at Jake Willers dot com and just click on the mentoring tab or learn more tab where it says it on just the homepage there. You can find it very, very easily. And then lastly, if you want to help support this podcast, the best way you can do it other than just telling other people about the podcast is to go to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com forward slash MWFP. That's patreon.com forward slash MWFP. And there you can get all sorts of bonus content. We have extracts from podcasts that didn't make it to the, these episodes because they went on so long uh, because I didn't want to stop talking with our guests. So we put the extra content there. There are catch-up conversations with previous guests, finding out what they've been doing since I last spoke to them and so much more of the behind the scenes. Please consider taking a look. That is the best way to sponsor this podcast and get more episodes in the future. 